Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Zane Asher in for Julia Chatley. Just ahead on today's show... Texas tragedy. Officials say right-wing extremism may have played a part in this weekend's deadly mass shooting at a Texas mall. We are live for you in Allen, Texas, with the very latest. Plus, battle brewing. Russia evacuates civilians from occupied southeastern Ukraine ahead of an anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive. And debt drama, a high-stakes meeting set for tomorrow in Washington as the U.S. rushes towards a possible debt default. Tuesday's debt ceiling negotiations will be a key driver of sentiment for global investors this week. On Wall Street's a cautious start to the trading day uh, on tap. U.S. stocks on track from mixed open, as you can see there on your screen. Europe a little bit higher as well. Also, new strength in U.S. regional banks. PacWest, whose shares lost almost half of their value last week, is set to rally more than 35 percent in early trading. It's cutting its dividends to help stabilize operations. And it says its business remains, quote, sound. Other regional banks like Western Alliance are also set to advance as well. And today, the U.S. Federal Reserve releases a report on just how much banks are limiting credit in the wake of the recent bank failures here in the U.S. So much to get through uh, this hour with you. I want to begin with the very latest in Ukraine, Russia, evacuating civilians from the Zaporizhia region ahead of an anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive. The move raising concerns about the safety of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the largest in Europe. Meanwhile, the head of the Wagner mercenary group is now suggesting his troops will stay in Bakhmut after all, saying the Russian defense ministry has actually promised him more ammunition. Uh, Nick Robertson is joining us live now. So, Nick, let's start with... Uh, what the UN's nuclear power watchdog is saying, they're saying the situation around this power plant is precarious, to say the least, is uh, very dangerous, especially considering that there is a counteroffensive likely brewing, obviously, by Ukrainian troops in the area as well. What more can you tell us? Well, the concern is that Russian-backed uh, authorities have been uh, moving civilians out of the neighbouring town to that power plant where some of the workers at the power plant actually work. So there's a concern that civilians vital to the safe uh, working at the power plant won't be there to provide that service. So that's one level of concern. The other concern is that a counter-offensive, because Russian forces are based at the power plant itself in and around it, Therefore, that, that, that could damage potentially the power plant and its safety and security. And of course, the IAEA has spent a lot of time and effort uh, to try to organize a peace plan around the power plant. But the other parts of the, the front line, the east in Bakhmut, also causing concern for the Ukrainian government. They're worried, despite what uh, the mercenary boss, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin of Wagner, has been saying that he was going to pull his troops out over the next couple of days if he didn't get more ammunition. What Ukrainian authorities are actually seeing there and experiencing 
is an increase in artillery fire by Russian forces and there is a level of concern that because tomorrow is the big victory day parade in Moscow on Red Square they think Vladimir Putin would like nothing better than to declare Bakhmut a victory and they're determined to stop that. So um, there is uh, intensive fire on many parts of the Eastern Front Line. We've been able to, where we're standing here, hear uh, some uh, heavy artillery in the distance. But that big counteroffensive that, that, that gets much discussion and debate, um, there isn't, uh, I would say, a lot of evidence uh, that it's about to happen and of course you ukrainian officials um and the ukrainian military are not giving any clues about where it could happen or when it could happen um but it doesn't appear to be around here and it doesn't appear to be anytime soon all right uh, nick willison live for us there thank you so much in Russia, preparations are now underway for Tuesday's Victory Day celebration, as Nick Robertson was just talking about there. The celebration marks the defeat of Nazi Germany in 1945. Moscow typically uses the Victory Day parade to show off its military might. Claire Sebastian uh, is joining us live now. So, Claire, when you think about just what's happened uh, this past week, what the Kremlin um, has had to deal with, obviously, drone attacks, for example, you have Prigozhin threatening mutiny as well. Obviously, he's since walked that back, but literally threatening to pull his troops out of Bakhmut. Just walk us through how all of that threatens to cloud the celebrations for Victory Day in Moscow. Yeah, Zane, I think it's clear, and, and frankly, it was clear even before the events of this week, that the war is taking its toll on this critically important day in Russian life. This is perhaps the biggest day uh, of the year for Russian. It's hard to overstate its importance, but we are seeing already that celebrations are being scaled back in some areas, particularly regions close to Ukraine, some cancelling parades, others cancelling things like fireworks display. There's, a, there's, a, there's an event called the Immortal Regiment where Russians tend to walk carrying pictures of relatives that died in the Second World War. Of course, Russian losses uh, were the biggest of any country uh, by an order of magnitude in the Second World War. That has been cancelled. There's speculation that there's concern that could have drawn attention to the losses in Ukraine. We are still going to see, as you see these rehearsals here, uh, these shows of military might, ballistic missiles, armored vehicles being paraded uh, around Russian cities and Red Square in Moscow. But that does not reflect the reality of this war in Ukraine. We are seeing that Russia, uh, unable to produce enough weapons to replace its losses, is now having to de dig even deeper into its historical stockpiles to try to sustain this war. What a missile will do is it'll fly over the tank, then down and then 90 degrees straight into the top of the turret, which is less well defended. This scenario has played out hundreds of times over the past 14 months. Ukraine using Western weapons to devastating effect. Russia, according to one recent estimate, has lost up to half its operational tank fleet in this war. Now Western officials say Russia's dusting off much older models to replace them. This gun was used on the Su-100 tank destroyer in 1944, so it's a Second World War gun. Including the T-55, first built in the 1940s. This one now housed at the Imperial War Museum outside Cambridge. Satellite imagery from a storage facility in Russia's far east showing dozens of tanks have been removed in the last year. This image showing the T-55 at that same facility. Video that first surfaced in March also showing a train load on the move, reportedly somewhere in Russia. The Russian Ministry of Defense hasn't confirmed their deployment, 
But in recent weeks, well-connected Russian bloggers have begun showing T-55s in Russian-occupied territory in Ukraine. There's so many of these were manufactured, over 100,000 altogether, and the parts, the, the basic mechanical parts are all interchangeable. So there will be vast stockpiles of these. The T-55 was a central piece of the Soviet Union's Cold War arsenal, helping crush democratic uprisings in Eastern Europe, Hungary in 1956, the Prague Spring 12 years later. But by the time Iraq used them in the Gulf War in the early 90s, we took out uh, all told 14 T-55 tanks. They were already outclassed by US M1 Abrams and British Challengers. Earlier versions of the tanks NATO countries are now supplying to Ukraine. I think faced with uh, Western weapons, um, the Russians must expect very heavy casualties if they expect to move forward using that type of uh, system. Experts say behind the official propaganda, Russia cannot build new weapons quick enough. Western sanctions primarily targeting Russia's access to higher-tech parts for weapons have made it much harder for them to manufacture more modern equipment. Older, simpler tanks like this, thousands of them just sitting in storage, provide an alternative. But this against, say, a Leopard 2 or a Challenger, what happens? If it's a one-on-one tank engagement over a reasonable distance, this will lose every time. But in, in wooded or closer built environments, this is adequate. It's also simpler to maintain and train on the newer systems, an advantage for Russia's mobilised troops. Dig a pit, sit it, sit the tank in the pit so you can only see the turret, uh, and then that can be used to defend a front line against a counterattack. Russia is now digging in with everything it has as Ukraine gets ready for what may be its biggest counteroffensive yet. Well, this uh, clearly shows that Ukraine may have the edge when it comes to quality, Zane, with the Western weapons that they continue to take delivery of. But Russia may be able to bring quantity to bear with these older weapons. And that means that the outcome uh, is not at all clear cut, especially as Russia gets ready to do more defending than attacking if Ukraine uh, launches this promised counteroffensive. Obviously, in the context uh, of Victory Day, critical to note that President Zelensky has also compared Russia's actions in Ukraine to the Nazi regime and is promising uh, to move Victory Day in Ukraine. He's, he, he's, uh, he's launching a bill with the, uh, with the government there to move Victory Day in Ukraine to the 8th of May, where Europe celebrates it, rather than the 9th of May, where Russia celebrates it. Zane? Right. Claire Sebastian, live for us there. Thank you so much. Right, another city in Texas is in mourning, again, after a mass shooting left eight people dead and seven wounded over the weekend. Now we're learning a little bit more about the shooter's background. The source is telling CNN that authorities are investigating whether the gunman was influenced by right-wing extremism. Police say uh, that the gunman was killed at the scene. Josh Campbell joins us live now from Allen, Texas. Do we know yet, Josh, definitively whether or not this was an act of domestic uh, terrorism? That is something that certainly investigators are looking at, and they're starting to key in on that potential extremist connection here. And that is because I'm told that after this shooting uh, happened, the suspect was obviously fatally shot by an officer at this mall behind me. And as they looked over the suspect on his chest, they found an insignia that read RWDS, which they believe stands for right wing 
Death Squad. It's the same type of insignia that we've seen here across the United States at various protests over the past few years by members of extremist groups. I'm also told that authorities are looking over a trove of digital evidence. The suspect had a uh, incredible, uh, incredibly large footprint online to include social media accounts. And I'm told that as investigators were looking at that, they found various posts that pertain to white supremacists as well as neo-Nazi type material that they believe the suspect himself had posted online. So we're getting more and more about him as they drill down and try to figure out what it was that was motivating this person. Uh, now, I'm also told from a source that this uh, attack that happened here, as bad as it was, and it was awful, uh, obviously, it could have been so much worse because we know that officer took down that suspect. On the suspect's person, they found multiple extra magazines uh, as well as that high-powered assault rifle. The suspect obviously came here with uh, uh, several several rounds of ammunition trying to cause mass death at this mall. Again, he was intercepted by an officer and ultimately taken down. This was a chaotic scene as people were fleeing. I want you to listen to one witness who talked to CNN who was in the pathway of the shooter as he was making his way inside. We basically turned and watched, and as we were watching, the shooter goes right across. He's not running, but he's kind of in a, a deliberate assault type move. And he either had a, an M16 or an M4 carbine, uh, and he was firing. He shot about four or five shots as he proceeded toward the hamburger place. So I don't know who he shot. Uh, and a few moments later, we saw a police officer and come across in front of us like he was in pursuit of the individual. And this is a live look here of a makeshift memorial that has been set up outside of this outlet mall. Uh, crosses set up for the eight victims who were killed in this attack. Of course, so many more were injured. And as we continue to cover this and focus on the investigation and the motive and the background of the shooter, obviously, first and foremost, for our minds and members of the public and the community here, certainly are the victims themselves. Of course, eight deceased Zane and for those multiple uh, people that were injured, they face a long road to recovery. Yeah, you're right. Our thoughts do go uh, to the family members of the victims. I mean, what a horrific phone call to have to uh, receive. Of course, the community is still processing uh, what happened over the weekend. Josh Campbell, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, I want to turn now to an unfolding humanitarian crisis in India. Officials say that more than 50 people have died this month as ethnic violence flares in the state of Manipur in northeast India. Hundreds more have been injured and tens of thousands of people have been displaced. Vedika Sud is live for us in New Delhi. Just, uh, Vedika, just walk us through what's prompted uh, the fighting between the Kuki and the Mai Tai tribes. Just, just walk us through that. Before I get to that, Zane, I just want to mention that the numbers that you've just mentioned yourself, the death toll, those who have been displaced, as well as uh, uh, the injured, which stands at over 200, these figures have not come from the Manipur state government. It's usually, you know, the state government that puts out these numbers, but in this case, they've been mom. CNN has reached out to them repeatedly, but they've refused to share any information with us. We actually had to send our teams to separate and different hospitals in the area to get the death toll numbers. And that's what we've put together. It stands at 55. We're expecting the death toll to perhaps rise over the next few days. But here's what happened. Last week, these two communities that you're talking about, the Kuki and the Maiti community. Now, the Maiti community is predominantly a Hindu community. And it 
actually has a population which accounts and amounts to more than 50% of Manipur's 3 million population. And the Kuka community is a tribal group. And they're a small community in Manipur in northeastern India. Northeastern India and Manipur actually shares a border with Myanmar. So very quickly, let me just tell you what happened. Now, the Maiti community wants to get the status of a tribal group, which means they would be accorded some special benefits that are given to tribal groups. And the tribal group here in this case, the Cookies, said this is not possible. You shouldn't be doing this. Why should they get benefits when they are the larger community within Manipur? So there was a protest that they led last week, which turned violent. It sparked clashes between the two communities. This led to arson, violence, and the burning down of several homes in Manipur. Now, what we're hearing from the Indian Army is that the situation today is under control, but the streets bear a very deserted look, Zain, which means that there is fragile calm in the area. The Manipur chief minister has come out and said the situation is slowly returning to normalcy, but of course there's fear, there's tension, and the fear of reprisal is something that both the communities are very, very anxious about at this point. There has been no word from the Indian prime minister yet. This is a state that is governed by his ruling party, the Bharatiya Janta Party, but for now, those displaced really don't want to go home. They fear that there could be a repeat of this, and there are really no assurances coming from the state government at this point. There has been no press conference from the chief minister assuring them that they can go home yet. Zain. Right, Vedika said, life was there. Thank you so much. We'll be right back with more after this short break. All right, welcome back to First Move. The clock is ticking towards a possible U.S. government debt default. President uh, Joe Biden is expected to meet congressional leaders tomorrow after the vast majority of Senate Republicans said they would refuse to raise the debt ceiling unless there are spending cuts. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says that the U.S. government could default as soon as June, uh, June 1st, actually, if Congress doesn't act. These negotiations with should not take place with a gun uh, really to the head of the American people. It simply is unacceptable for Congress to threaten economic calamity for American households and the global financial system. Lauren Fox joins us live now. So President uh, Biden meeting Republican leaders tomorrow. Both sides really digging in their heels here. Uh, Given that, what can we expect? Well, I think this meeting is really a question of whether or not both the Republicans and the Biden administration are going to be able to recalibrate their sticking positions over the last several months. It's been about 100 days since Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, sat down with President Biden to discuss this issue. They really haven't had a communication sense about the debt ceiling. Now this deadline is coming up quickly with just eight days when lawmakers are going to be here in Washington to figure this out. That's not to say lawmakers can't negotiate with the president via the telephone, but that just gives you a sense of the urgency heading into this potential June 1st deadline that the Treasury Secretary laid out. The question coming out of tomorrow's meeting is whether or not both sides are going to be starting to work together again to find some kind of resolution. The key sticking point has been Republicans are arguing they will not increase the debt ceiling without promises of spending cuts, 
Meanwhile, the Democrats have been arguing that the debt ceiling should be raised without any spending cuts, as it has been in the past. Is there a two-track way to move the negotiating posts further? That's the big question going into tomorrow's meeting. It's just not clear right now whether or not either side is feeling the urgency of the moment right now. It's still to be determined if they can find a solution before this deadline. Before June 1st. All right, Lauren Fox, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, joining us now is Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco. Uh, Christina, so good to see you. So you just heard what Lauren Fox was saying there about the debt ceiling deadline. The debt ceiling in the U.S. has been raised, extended, etc., over 78 times, 78 times roughly uh, since 1960. And we're, we're used to negotiations going down to the wire, but waiting until the last minute can have really significant consequences on business and especially on, on consumer confidence. Absolutely. Um, 78 times, but who's counting? Um, this could be more This could be more significant, though, because we have uh, a very politically strained environment in a variety of different ways. I don't think it was in anyone's bingo card um, that it would take 25 rounds of voting uh, to elect a Speaker of the House this year. And I think that um, because of that, there is a heightened concern that we might not get a resolution soon, um, that this could actually be worse than the summer of 2011. Uh, and if you recall, it took a little while to come to agreement, and that had um, significant consequences um, uh, in, in several different ways and certainly impacted markets. So that is the big fear, but we always hold out hope um, that a, a resolution can be reached. And in terms of what else investors are watching this year, um, this week, not this year, <laughs> well, overall this year, I guess, but especially this week, um, CPI coming out on Wednesday. We also have PPI this week. When it comes to the Fed, obviously, they're looking at the data here very, very closely. Do you anticipate any kind of good news uh, from the position of the Fed? I mean, they've talked about potentially, I mean, they've intimated that potentially they could pause rate hikes. But given the jobs report that we saw on Friday, I mean, where do you see that going? That was a lot of questions so my, in one, by the way. <laughs> I'll try to answer at least some of those. Okay. So my, my read on the Fed's announcement last week is that we are in a de facto conditional pause. Just based on the language they used, it was very similar to the language used in 2006 when the Fed ended hiking rates. Um, they always want to have some caveats in there and an ability to step back in. Um, at the end of the day, they are data dependent, which means that there certainly is a heightened sensitivity to the data, and they could step it back in and hike rates more. I think what we're going to see is generally progress when it comes to inflation moving downward, but it's not going to be clean. So there could be a data point um, that spikes a bit. Um, it's going to be a lumpy journey down. So the question becomes whether or not the Fed is satisfied with progress. And I think it largely will be. I think that um, the standard has changed for another rate hike. Uh, and so I would imagine that we aren't going to see any more rate hikes. Keep in mind, there's one other thing we're waiting for this week, and that's the senior loan officer survey. And that's all about tightening credit conditions. And recall Jay Powell said last week that that could be doing, and he said it before, that could be doing some of the Fed's work for it. So I think if we look at the, the big picture holistically, um, we're unlikely to see another rate hike. Even though we have seen such a resilient labor market, I mean, 
253 or so, 253,000 jobs added uh, in terms of what we got on Friday. Obviously, that number could be revised, but still, the labor market has been very resilient. So you don't anticipate that the Fed is going to adjust their perspective based on that at all? I don't think so, because keep in mind, uh, as you touched on, um, previous months were downwardly revised, right? So this is not a perfect picture. Certainly the labor market is strong, um, but um, we are seeing, in general, improvement in the inflation journey. And the Fed really has to worry that the more they hike rates, more things are likely to break. And in terms of uh, an area of the economy that appears to be, as you touched on, doing the Fed's job for it, the failure of three banks, um, the resulting sort of tightening of credit conditions, the pullback in lending, obviously that affects small businesses uh, significantly. Where do you see a potential recession uh, this year? Well, I'm hopeful that we can avoid a recession. If we do see a recession, I think it would be rather mild. uh, And I think it would likely hit late in 2023. Um, Keep in mind that typically we have that 12 to 18 month policy lag from when policy is implemented. And of course, rate hikes began uh, last March. um, And when, of course, it shows up in the economy. So we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of an impact on economic activity. Um, That is likely to unfold as the year progresses. Uh, Again, there are some things really going for this economy, especially the labor market. So hopefully um, that creates a resilience that that helps us avoid any kind of significant recession. So given the policy lag, uh, you look at where inflation is, you look at where, I mean, we'll get the CPI data in a couple of days, but you look at where that is overall, you look at the labor market. Is this where you would have anticipated the data points to be this far into the game, given the policy lag, as you just mentioned? Yes, loosely, um, because it, it will take time to show up. I think inflation is largely a rear view mirror concern, um, to be quite frank with you. I think it's moving in the right direction. And I think policy that has already been implemented um, will, uh, will push it down further. I think what we have to worry about the risks ahead, like a recession, like other things breaking. For example, banks continue to be under pressure because the Fed hiked rates again last week. All right, Christina. Hope my first there, Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco. Thank you so much. All right, welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running uh, this Monday, a mixed start to the trading week. Some early session weakness in tech. All of this after a strong rally on Friday. Investors cheered a rally in regional bank shares as well as solid U.S. jobs numbers as well. Lots of challenges, though, in the day ahead. Uh, days ahead, rather, including key April inflation data and that important bipartisan debt ceiling meeting in Washington tomorrow that we're all going to be watching very closely. The Chinese foreign minister meeting with the U.S. ambassador to China in Beijing, describing the relations between the two as, quote, uh, as cold as ice. But uh, the foreign minister said stabilizing ties between the two superpowers is a top priority. Ivan Watson joins us live now. Ivan, do we know what came out of this meeting? Well, the most details are coming from the Chinese foreign ministry uh, about 
What's frankly an important meeting. I mean, it is the first time that China's top diplomat has sat down face to face uh, with the ambassador to Beijing from the U.S. That is since Qin Gang was uh, appointed to the position of state counselor and foreign minister. That's back in December. There's been an awful lot that has gone wrong in the relationship between the world's two largest economies uh, since then. Uh, And the Chinese foreign ministry readout... uh, uh, specifically addresses that, saying that the relationship has been on ice uh, with some tough words, uh, with the Chinese diplomat accusing the U.S. of uh, missteps and wrong words that have led to this, uh, urging the U.S. ambassador in the U.S. to to think uh, deeply about this, uh, but then using some other kind of uh, more positive language, talking about uh, urging the U.S. to meet China halfway uh, and to prevent things from being able to spin out of control between these two powers. And some of that actually echoes comments and quotes that uh, Nicholas Burns, the U.S. ambassador, made just last week, where he said the U.S. was ready to talk to China, uh, that uh, it wanted both sides, that China to meet us halfway. So there seems to be an echo of that here. Uh, Burns uh, published a tweet just basically acknowledging that the meeting did, in fact, take place. And I can just take you back a little bit through uh, the the timeline of how uh, relations have eroded. You had uh, U.S. President Biden meet face-to-face with the Chinese leader Xi Jinping back in November in Bali on the sidelines uh, of a G20 summit. And they uh, had basically kind of reinfused some uh, enthusiasm for discussion, some hope for improved relations that have gotten very rocky. And then those were kind of uh, thrown uh, to the sidelines by the appearance of a Chinese surveillance balloon over the U.S. in February that was ultimately shot down. The U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, was supposed to visit Beijing in February, but that visit was postponed, and we don't know when or if that will ever take place. the fact that you had these officials talking, that suggests that there's room for some kind of dialogue and, and hopefully for, for uh, avoiding things getting out of control, because there are certainly some big sticking points, and Beijing referred to them today, uh, notably Taiwan. Uh, just last month, uh, the Chinese government imposed sanctions on the Ronald Reagan Library in the U.S. and on the Hudson Institute after the president of Taiwan made a visit to the U.S., China, the Chinese government does not like that kind of engagement uh, with Taiwan. Back to you. Right. Ivan Watson, Life was there. Thank you so much. Russia's war on Ukraine could lead to changes in a long-standing Ukrainian industry, surrogate, parent, surrogate parenting. As the war erodes Ukraine's population, lawmakers are considering banning foreigners from paying Ukrainian women to carry and deliver their babies. But some of those women tell us it's because of the war that they need to do this. CNN's Nick Robertson explains the controversy. There's mom. She's doing fine. And there's baby. She's great too. But all is not well at this Ukrainian surrogacy clinic. The government might shut it, and others like it, down. We're going down to the vault where they keep all the embryos they've stored. All the embryos are inside, are inside these. Albert Tochilovsky lifts the lid. Yeesh, that's cold. So these would have to be destroyed, all of them destroyed. 
Embryos, he says, used by clients and infertile Ukrainian women. It could collapse his multi-million dollar business. It will mean death to me and end the possibility for European families to have babies here and the chance for income for Ukrainian women. Biotex.com helps childless couples all over the world. Ukraine's surrogacy laws leave birth mothers few legal rights, making women here, like Alessia, highly sought after and relatively well compensated, typically $20,000. The financial situation in our family is bad. We've got big problems, so I have to help my husband earning money. The baby's due in two weeks' time. Is that going to be difficult for you to let the baby go? We've got used to her. We've been playing with her, talking to her, treat her as our own child. So it's not like a purse simply to make money. We feel for her as our own. Natalia, a coal miner, is seven months pregnant with her second surrogate baby, has come to Kyiv until the baby is handed off to its biological parents from Italy. No, for the first surrogacy, for Chinese parents, we bought an apartment, she says. This time wasn't an easy decision, but we did it to provide a better life for our own children. Before the war, Biotex.com averaged about 450 successful surrogate births a year. Last year, that jumped to 600. Lawmakers in President Zelensky's party say that the war has so impacted the population here that no children should be allowed to leave the country. They declined our request to explain their proposed law in more detail. Alessia and her husband Harik have two children already and want the possibility of another surrogate and of helping put love into another couple's lives. That happiness will arrive in another home. Someone else must feel joy, not only ourselves. The benefits of this surrogacy for them have already been life-changing. Enough money to flee their dangerous frontline home. This surrogacy saved us. Thanks to this, we are sitting here in safety. Lives, many of them yet to be born, at stake on this pending government decision. Nick Robertson, CNN, Kyiv, Ukraine. Fighting rages on in Sudan as envoys from the two warring sides gather uh, to face-to-face to face to face, uh, peace talks. The violence comes as representatives of the Sudanese army and the paramilitary rapid support forces met in Jeddah for talks led by the US and Saudi Arabia. The conflict has killed hundreds, triggered a mass exodus and created a humanitarian crisis. More aid arrived on Friday and Saudi Arabia has agreed to send aid worth up to $100 million, according to the Saudi news agency SPA. Akia Musha is the Sudan director at Concern Worldwide, a humanitarian organization. Musha, thank you so much for being with us. You think about the position that Sudan was in prior to the conflict. Uh, Sudan already had major humanitarian needs, especially given the worsening economic situation of the country. There were millions of people already who were food insecure. And on top of that, the country was also dealing with climate change. Just walk us through how much worse 
things have gone? How much has the situation on the ground there deteriorated over the past month? Hi, Jen. Um, thank you for, for inviting me um, to join this um, program. Um, in Sudan, as you mentioned, there are, the people are suffering. Over 16 million people are, uh, are in need for humanitarian assistance before the conflict. And when the, con when the conflict started, the situation has, has become worse and people at all levels are in, in crisis. They are running for um, safety, saving their life um, in safe places inside Sudan and outside Sudan. Many of the people are fleeing Sudan and, and reached to border uh, of different countries. Um, and inside Sudan, the situation is uh, is really a grave situation. It's a huge humanitarian crisis uh, is there. Um, people are, have run out of food. There is no electricity, no water supply shortages. When people are moving from their house to different separate places, they could not take anything. So they are in a in a in in in, in real um, um really terrible situation, and on top of the previous situation, this has aggravated further, and 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 uh, people people in all level need support. Yeah, you list out some of the issues um, on the ground there, and on top of that, you have you know, a paramilitary group using hospitals, uh, hospitals as strategic bases. You know. What happens to the people who need medical attention right now uh, in Sudan, given that the fact that there are a number of hospitals, especially in Khartoum, that are not even operating right now? Yeah, there are a number of many hospitals in different places and, and, and not, not operating. Um, there are a number of reasons for that. One is the either hospital are hit um, during the fight or uh, there is no um, the doctors and nurses. They cannot really reach the hospitals. And there is no supplies in the hospitals. They run out of supplies. There is no medicine. There is no other medical consumables to to um, run the hospitals and, and provide support to the to the patients. Um, so in this situation, in in many of the health facilities in in Sudan are not really operating. They need acute. Um, they are they are in acute support of need um, from different different level. So the people who. You touched on the people who have managed to escape outside the country. Obviously, there are people who managed to flee to South Sudan, to Chad. What can the international communities, what can they do right now to ensure that these countries have the adequate infrastructure to prepare for these new arrivals? Yeah, in, um, in, uh, in different countries when people are arriving there and the concern worldwide has been supporting uh, the Sudanese refugees in, in Chad who reached to the Chad border and also concern is supporting in, in, uh, in, in South Sudan while the Sudanese people has, uh, have reached to, to South Sudan. Um, concern has, has planned to provide support uh, for health, for nutrition, for um, non-food items like blankets, uh, uh, mattresses, the household items, the utensils, um, water buckets, uh, so different items. In addition to that, Concern has planned to support um, the, uh, the shelter materials, the distrib uh, plan to distribute shelter materials. So in both South Sudan and, and Chad, we, we, we have been planning this um, uh, to support these people. 
And in terms of your organization mm. specifically, I mean, um, Musha, you, you know, Concern actually had to pause operations initially when the fighting first broke out. You then managed to get some of your workers out of the country. There are a lot of workers, though, from what I understand, who still remain within Sudan. I mean, what are you doing to keep uh, them safer at this point? Yeah, I mean, after the, the conflict broke out, um, we, our primary focus was to ensure the safety and security of our, our staff. Um, we have had international staff and also national staff. So we looked at, uh, at, at both both groups. Um, we, we supported our international staff to evacuate uh, through Port Sudan. And also we have been guiding and supporting people to go to the safer places, uh, our national staff. And all our national staff are, are currently safe uh, I have been communicating to them uh, and our headquarters um, colleagues are also communicating to them to to ensure that they are safe and, and, and guiding them to, to be at the, at the safer places. And in, in certain areas where um, situation has a bit calmer, like in, um, in South Kordofan and uh, West Kordofan states, these are the two states a bit, bit calm where concern um, uh, operates. Uh, we are planning to, to resume, our, resume our operation. Our staff are on the ground. Um, they are doing the assessment. Um, and also we are assessing the Darfur, which is the Darfur situation where we are also operational uh, to see as soon as the situation improves, we will resume our operation. Uh, in addition to supporting our Sudanese colleagues in country, we are also um, organizing a group of experts, our, our rapid deployment team, who are expert in different areas like health, nutrition, uh, food security, uh, water and sanitation supply. So we are uh, uh, putting together a team to again enter into the Sudan, um, including myself. I lead a team to, to go to Sudan again to support our national colleagues uh, to uh, for the humanitarian operation. Right. Thank you, Musha. Thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. The public holiday continues in Britain, which is celebrating a long coronation weekend. Today, members of the royal family are joining volunteers, carrying out work for charity, like Prince Louis, who got a helping hand from his dad for today's event called The Big Help Out. On Saturday, 20 million people in Britain tuned in to see King Charles being crowned at Westminster Abbey. That's five million less uh, than the TV audience for the funeral of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II. Last night, Lionel Richie, Katy Perry and others performed at a coronation concert at Windsor Castle where Prince William paid tribute to his father. My father's first words on entering Westminster Abbey yesterday were a pledge of service. It was a pledge to continue to serve because for over 50 years, in every corner of the UK, across the Commonwealth and around the world, he has dedicated himself to serve others. Pa, we are all so proud of you. Nada Bashir is uh, in London for us. So Nada, this idea of service was a, a big theme at, at the coronation. In fact, King Charles said, I come not to be served, but to serve, echoing the words of his late mother as well. Just, just walk us through what's involved uh, in the big help out today and what the royals are doing. Well, that certainly is a key focus for the royal family and was 
a key aspect of the coronation celebrations today, which would be a bank holiday, traditionally a day off for people here in Britain. But they are calling on all those in the country to take part in some way or other in volunteering and offering support and help to those in need. We are seeing members of the royal family, of course, also taking part in this initiative. Today, we've seen the Prince and Princess of Wales joined by their three children, including Prince Louis, who took part in the Big Help Up today, helping out with a Scouts initiative. This is his first royal engagement, but certainly not the last. This really is a family affair. And that was certainly the case yesterday, as we saw at the concert in Windsor celebrating the coronation. Prince William there uh, dedicating that message to his father and, of course, remembering the late Queen Elizabeth. But, of course, this was a more happier celebration than we've seen uh, with the Queen's funeral. But we saw a similar turnout. We saw huge crowds lining the mall, reminiscent of those 10 days in which we saw people from across the globe travelling into London to pay their respects to the Queen. And that was certainly the message that we got from people we spoke to at the mall uh, outside Buckingham. In Palace yesterday, mainly saying that they wanted to be part of this moment of history, that they wanted to share this experience with their families, not just people from the United Kingdom, but of course many travelling in from across the globe uh, once again. But you did mention that this had a slightly lower turnout when it comes to the TV viewership, five million less people tuning in uh, than we saw with the Queen's funeral. And perhaps uh, this is a signal of a new era of the monarchy. This is a change. This is uh, a, a monarchy where we have seen some controversy, particularly in recent months with regards to Prince Harry and Prince Andrew. So there are certainly uh, some questions there. Many, of course, took to the streets in protest of the coronation here in London. The police confirming that some arrests were indeed carried out as a result of those demonstrations. But of course, with the cost of living crisis currently ongoing, with many people struggling uh, to afford even the most basic of goods here in the United Kingdom, for some, seeing a large-scale celebration, such as we saw over the weekend for the coronation, possibly not the right moment, didn't strike the right tone. But for others, a huge celebration of a moment of history here in the United Kingdom. Zane? Yeah, Nada, you touched on the TV numbers. I mean, 20 million people tuned in to the BBC. Uh, as you point out, yes, still a third of the country, but still significantly less than uh, the number of people who watched the Queen's funeral. I mean, just explain to us in 30 seconds very quickly why you, why you think that is. Well, the Queen was a figure that was respected, revered globally. This was a person who has been at almost all the most important historic events, someone who is recognised across the globe, and she has a legacy which continues to live on. And we saw that in the 10 days of the memory of the marking to celebrate her funeral. That was certainly evident. King Charles, of course, still has a long way to go to prove himself as the monarch of the United Kingdom. Very diplomatic answer, Nada. And you did that very quickly. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's it for the show. I'm Zane Asher. I'll be back in a couple of hours with One World. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.